Beloved, we're going to take a brief diversion from Luke. I invite you to open your copy of the Word of God to Philippians chapter 1. My hope today is that we are going to be challenged by the Word of God. My hope is that we are going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and overcome by what Christ has done for us. So Philippians 1, our focus will be upon verses 9 through 11. And this is what it says. Paul is writing and he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we come again to you. We thank you for your word. And now we ask that you might take what we have read and brand it on our hearts. We need, Lord, the conviction of sins. We need to see exactly where and how and how far we fall short. Because we need to comprehend your grace. And I pray that you will pour your grace out upon us and compel us by the love of Christ to glorify you in how we respond to your word today. May we be those who embody the things Paul prays for here. And may we likewise pray also to this end. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. These three verses are a high calling. But before we dig into them, we need to know how Paul gets to this point. What was going on? The context. If you don't don't look at a text without a context, you usually come up with a pretext. And we don't want that. We want to know what the Word of God says. We want to obediently understand and live out what the Word of God says. And what we piece together through the book of Acts and the New Testament letters, and church history, is that Paul wrote Philippians around A.D. 61 or 62. We're talking three decades after the cross, three decades after the empty tomb, almost three decades after Paul was saved by God on the Damascus Road, and probably about five or six years before Paul himself would be killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. But in the meantime... Paul had a fantastic and widespread ministry, and he writes this well-established as an apostle whose ministry had spanned for decades. He had gone from Jerusalem and now was in the heart of Europe. The center of the world was Rome, and that's where he was. And That said, of course, not all was well. Because it's believed Paul wrote Philippians, while under the same house arrest we see him being held in at the end of the book of Acts. He wrote four letters, we believe, at least four letters from that imprisonment. He talks about that imprisonment in this chapter, Philippians 1, later in the chapter. And while he thought that he would live through it, he didn't know he'd live through it. And really, there was no earthly reason to hope for anything. Nevertheless, What is the overwhelming theme of the book of Philippians? It's joy. 
From start to finish, from chapter 1 to chapter 4 and all in between, joy permeates from the book of Philippians. And of course, we should remember before we dive into this that joy does not equal happiness. Jesus was a lot of times not happy. We have sung this morning, man of sorrows, what a name. He was called a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But he always had joy. He always exhibited all of the fruits of the Spirit. And one of those is joy. And he always had, what is joy? It's that inner contentment of the heart. Despite circumstances around us. What goes on around you and what goes on in your life may affect your happiness, but it shouldn't affect your joy if you're a Christian because that is something that comes from God. The first mention of joy in this letter is in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So his first mention of joy in in this letter that is about joy is inextricably linked to prayer. Joy is inextricably linked to prayer here. He links it because the topic of verses 9 through 11 is how we come to speak to God. It is prayer. And this morning, that fact alone should drive us to want to understand the source of Paul's joy and how it led him to live, how it drove him to think about the church and how it applies to you and me right here. We want to, if, if we want to glorify God, beloved, we really need to know how God wants us to pray. So then, where did Paul's joy come from? After all, his life at this point is about as bleak as it could get. Many of us are struggling with different things. Some of us have, some of us are in hospital beds this morning. Some of us have spouses who are really struggling. Some of us are really struggling. Some of us have family members really struggling. Some of us have problems with our jobs. Some of us have all kinds of other issues. Paul's life was about as bleak as it could get. You know, life isn't sunshine and rainbows for the Christian. It's never promised to be either. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking that's how it should be for us. But where did his joy come from? Well, as it relates to joy in this church, it was verse 5, in view of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. His joy was grounded in participating in the gospel. The Philippian believers, they were not gospel spectators. But they actively participated in proclaiming it and in living it out. They let what God had done to them impact every part of their lives. They didn't compartmentalize their faith. They let their faith flow through everything. Rather it be their home life, their work life, all of it was grounded in what Jesus Christ had done for them. This was a body of believers who were disciples wanting to make disciples for the glory of their Lord. They were a missionary church. And what that means is that they weren't just a church associated with missions. They were a church on mission. A very important distinction. They were actively assisting Paul in carrying out his ministry. They themselves were carrying out ministry. Even when times were tough. 
Even when it looked like there was every earthly reason to quit. I mean, after all, their leader, Paul, is in prison. They're going to no doubt be coming for us. There's no earthly reason to continue. And yet, they had joy. And that brought Paul great joy. And he dwelt on that as he contemplated the sovereignty of God in verse 6. He was confident that God, who had begun the good work in them to begin with, would complete it, would perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And all of that brought about a deep affection, a very Christ-like affection on the part of Paul for this church. And it's all the first part of this letter then comes couched in the language of prayer as we get to verses 9 through 11. The things Paul prayed for. And the first thing we see Paul pray for in verse 9 is love. Love. And specifically, that your love may still abound more and more. You know, we use the word love a lot. And in English it can, I mean it does in English mean so many different things. English, that way, can be a very imprecise language. Greek is a little more on the nose. There are a few different words in the Greek that are translated love in our English Bibles in the New Testament. I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'll cover the three main ones. The first one is eros. We get the word erotic from the word eros, and it speaks of the kind of sensual and physical love that is to only be shared between one man and one woman in the bonds of marriage. Eros. Another word is phileo, which is a brotherly, a familial love. The city of Philadelphia is called that, the city of brotherly love. Why? Because it's, it comes from that Greek word phileo. But then there's another type of love. It's the love spoken of in John 3.16. It's the love really that is specific to God. And those who are of God. And the word for that is agape. Agape love is sacrificial. Agape love is enduring. Agape love is faithful. Agape love is the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Patient, kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not keep a a record of wrongs. It does not... It rejoices with the truth. Agape love never fails. And it's this kind of love which is at the heart of biblical Christianity. And it has to be because of what we read in 1 John 4, 8. That God is love. God is agape is what John writes. Sacrificial, enduring, faithful. That complete kind of love is intrinsically Part of who God is. Agape love is bound in God's holy character. And so it is part and parcel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Agape love then is part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian and live as a Christian. God, to further His own glory, agapes sinners. God loves sinners and He takes great joy in that. We'll see that even more next Sunday, actually. But God takes great joy in loving sinners and drawing them to Himself. 
Remember verse, uh, Romans 9, what we read this morning? We'd all be like Sodom and Gomorrah if it weren't for God drawing us to Himself. And He takes great joy in drawing sinners to Himself through the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. What that means is that if you are saved, if Jesus Christ is in you this morning, then agape love also becomes part of your character. That kind of love God has poured out on you becomes the kind of love you pour back out to God and to others. Agape love is absolutely wedded to our faith. We can't separate it from our faith and and what it means to be a holy, called out community of believers known as the church. It is what we are to be. It It is what we are to do because it's who God is and it's what God does. It's who God is and it's how God loves. Thus, and Jesus is very clear about this throughout the Gospels. You cannot know God if you are not one who also agape loves. If you don't, if this love doesn't embody you and this love doesn't flow out of you, you prove yourself not to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says all over the Bible. All over the Gospels. So it's no wonder Paul would pray that the church's love would abound more and more. To abound, to have an abundance. More than one person over the past few days has told me about Susie Dupree. And if you went to her house before she went to Tara, there was an abundance of food. Right? That's what a good grandmother does, right? That's what my grandmother did. God wants us, Paul prays for us to have agape, sacrificial, enduring, faithful, complete love in abundance, more and more. It's ever growing. We don't ever reach a point where we've loved enough. Romans 8, 29 and 30 speak to this when Paul writes that those whom God has foreknown He has called those whom He's called. He's justified those whom He justified. He glorifies. And in the middle of that He says, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What that means is that God progressively throughout our lives is conforming us to look more like Jesus. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you will progressively be looking more and more like Jesus. Thus, you will love more and more. It will grow in you. It will flow out of you. In Philippians 1, verse 6, we've already pointed at this, but He who began a good work in you completes it. He perfects it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's no room. Scripture doesn't talk about anyone who permanently backslides. Yeah, we we, we stump. There are stumbles in the Christian faith. But if you are not constantly being conformed more, and if you don't, if you stumble and you don't feel repented about it, if you stumble and you don't feel convicted about it, worry about your salvation then, because God says He's conforming you to the image of His Son. Second Peter three eighteen. If you ever get an email from me, you see this at the bottom of it. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow more and more. This love from God 
is in those he saves, and it is to overflow from us and grow in us more and more. It's no accident that in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, when we get the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first one listed? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things there are no law. Love comes first. Why does love come first? I don't think it's an accident. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. is impossible to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit if you don't have love. Love comes first because in part it takes love to do all the other things. If not, you're going to be that loud gong, that clanging symbol from 1 Corinthians 13. If sacrificial, faithful love isn't at the root of your faith and how you live your life. So love is commanded by God. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. It's provided by God. This love doesn't just generate within us. It's something given to us by God that He grows in us. And and that's why Paul prays to God that we would love more and more. So love is the first thing he prays for here. But it's not the only thing. Love is to abound more and more what? In real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge and all discernment. Beloved, the second thing Paul prays for here is our theology. Our theology. And you may be sitting there and thinking, oh my goodness, he used the word theology. What do love and theology have to do with one another? Well, you need to know that they have everything to do with one another. Love and theology are are not mutually exclusive properties. They are inextricably bound together. Take God's love for you, for example. Many think love is an emotion. Beloved, love is not grounded in emotions, not agape love. You know, God did not look down at you and get misty-eyed because of how wonderful you are and decide He's going to save you. Agape love is a choice. If you're saved, it's not because God got all weepy over you. It's because... on. On the contrary, you know, Romans 9, Jacob and Esau, before the twins were even born, before one had done good and one had done bad, before any of that happened, what did God say? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God made a choice. Matt, he loved. Thanks be to God. He said his agape on me before I was even born, and agape never fails no matter what. So if you are saved... Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus because God has made a choice to love. And likewise, our love is not to diminish either. His love never diminishes for us. Our love is never to diminish. But it is not to be swayed by emotions. It is not to be swayed by our mood. But it is to abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Our love must drive our theology. And likewise, our theology must drive our love. They are not mutually exclusive, but they have to be joined lockstep. You know, even the word theology, for some people, sends you running. Don't talk, don't give me theology, just give me Jesus. I can't stand when people say, maybe that's your mind. Don't be that Christian. Because what is theology? 
It's, 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 it's the study of God. It's who God is. The word on God. And well, even the word theology sends people running. It seems cold. Theology can be cold without love. But on the other hand, love without theology is empty. Because love rejoices with the truth. So then if you want to love God more, what's Paul saying here? In real knowledge and all discernment, you've got to strive to know God more. I'm constantly amazed at people who say I love Jesus Christ but never seem to be in the Scriptures. It's just not part of their, their lives. It's just not part of who they are except for maybe a few minutes on a weekly basis. And if you want to convince somebody you love Christ, Christian, if you really love the God of the Word, you better love and be in the Word of God. It's as simple as that. It's the only way you'll really get to know Him. You know, God says that what He reveals to us in creation is enough to condemn us. But the only knowledge that leads to salvation is found right here. And how can our agape love for one another abound more and more, increase if we aren't in our Bibles increasingly? Likewise, how can our love for one another increase if we aren't in one another's lives? And I mean on a spiritual basis. You know, it's one thing to have history with people. <clears throat> it's another thing to share spiritual bonds. And, and it's rare. You know, we live in a world where there are, except at my family reunions, we always talk about this at my family reunions, but um, there are two things you're not supposed to talk about, right? Religion and politics. Well, that's for, that's for them. That's for unbelievers. It should all. I mean, our faith is is supposed to be what we talk about. How it impacts our lives is supposed to be what we talk about. Our concerns, our our fears, our our what we're learning, what we need to learn, what what the questions we have. It should be what we interact with each other with. You know. Your relationship with God isn't just between you and God. Our faith is personal, but it's never private. I, if you love me and, and if I love you, you are responsible for me and I am responsible for you. As brothers and sisters in Christ, your spiritual welfare is my business and mine is yours. You're to know me and I'm to know you and we're to share our lives with one another so that we can always be loving each other the best we possibly can. That's what Paul means by knowledge. And discernment, the word translated here, discernment, it's the only time that Greek word is used in the New Testament. It means insight or, or perception or judgment. It conveys the idea of practically applying the deep knowledge we have for one another. So you learn more about God and you're able to have insight as to how you're to live your life for God more. You get to know and love someone better. You have insight and perception and judgment about how to love that person better the more you get to know them. That's what Paul is talking about here. And why? Because it leads us to the third thing that Paul prays for us for. And that's 
our practice. There's a a saying that preachers sometimes use that we need to preach and teach in such a way that our orthodoxy leads us to orthopraxy. That our right thinking leads us to right living. That's what is the thought here. Our, 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 our obedient, Paul's praying for obedient living here. Our love for God and one another and our theology spurned on by it and motivated from it drives us to what? To approve the things which are excellent. And if you follow how this passage goes, as John MacArthur puts it, <coughs> the progression is from love, which incorporates knowledge of God's truth and spiritual discernment, to excellence, that is, thinking and living biblically. That word for approve in verse 10, it means to examine. Medical examiners, they, 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 they view a body, and they view it very carefully in many cases. When, when, it, when, when they're trying to find out what the cause of death is, they will turn inside and out to get an answer. That's what real examination is. But there are far too many Christians who are content to go along to get along with as little biblical knowledge as necessary, not examining the Word of God to know what is the cause of their hope. You know, sometimes we sanctify our own opinions without searching the Scriptures to make sure what we say and think is what God says and thinks. I ran across a quote the other day. I was actually preparing for a a lesson I'm going to be doing in Genesis shortly. And the quote was, it was like this. It says, if we would be faithful Bible expositors, we must be guided by what God has actually said, not what we think He should have said. And so often the way we love others and the way we think about things, the way we think about the church, the way we think about how we should live our lives, is really based more on how we think God wants us to live rather than on what, how God says He wants us to live. Our practice must be guided by our theology. Our, not, our theology must be guided by God's Word and grounded in His love for us and our love for Him. Paul writes that the word excellent, approve the things which are excellent. The last chapter of the book, he writes this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence... And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Notice how excellence is tied to purity and what is right and what is truthful. What is true? What is, what is holy? We want to... Why? So, what does he say? In order to be sincere and blameless... We want to be found sincere and blameless before the Lord. We don't want to be those who hide in shame at His coming. We want to be found sincere and blameless before the Lord. So how dare we not dwell on these things? Beloved, we can't be content just to know we're saved. We must instead 
come before the Lord pursuing His excellent truth. We need to be compelled to know our God and to live as those who know our God, practicing what has been preached to us, practicing what Jesus preaches. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through faith to the glory and praise of God. We were unrighteous. We, were, by nature, we're all unrighteous. But when God saves us, He credits us with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. I spoke about this on Friday at Susie's funeral. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God the Father made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God declares us righteous, but only those who truly have His righteousness are going to bear the fruit of righteousness. That old self is buried. We're no longer slaves to sin, Romans 6, but slaves to Christ. And so we must present our members as slaves to righteousness. We must bear the fruit of Christ's righteousness. That's what Paul's praying for. And it comes only through Jesus. This isn't something that we muster up by being morally superior to others. This isn't something we muster up by by our own standards of what right and and holy should be. It comes only through Jesus. It comes only by what He says in His Word. He's the source of it. He's the only one who can take us to the Father. His is the only name by which men under heaven might be saved. He's the only one through whom we obtain spiritual power. And to what end? Verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of our love. The fruit of our theology the fruit of our obedient living, the fruit of righteousness, these things aren't ends to themselves, but they are part of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the glory of God. The glory of God is the overwhelming theme of Scripture. The glory of God is what the cross is all about. The glory of God is what the the resurrection is all about. The glory of God is what Israel being enslaved in Egypt is all about. The glory of God is what the Exodus was all about. The glory of God is what His kingdom is all about. The glory of God is what the exile was all about. The glory of God is what Jesus Christ returning is all about. And all that we do and all that we say and all of our love and all of our theology and all of how we live is to the glory and praise of God. We don't do what the Word of God says to build our spiritual resumes. We do what the Word of God says Because God is worthy of it. And so Paul prays for this church to love obediently, to live obediently, to seek to know Him more. Love, theology, and practice. Love, theology, and obedient living. And as we head into a time of responding to the Word of God, that needs to start with us right now. You know, maybe these things need to be added to our prayer list. Abounding love, right theology, obedient living for the glory of God. These are ambitions worthy of our Savior. These are things that please Him. Let's please Him. Let's not... 
We're not, why, are we here to please ourselves or are we here to please Him? If we're here to seek the approval of men, we are not bondservants of Christ. Galatians 1.10 Everything we do, everything we say, all of our love, all of our everything has to be for the glory of God. And so let's, let's do it. Let's pray to this end. That God might glorify Himself through us. And let's do it right now. Father, we fall so short of your holy standard. We're, we are imperfect. We're so imperfect we have a hard time understanding how bad we are. We have a hard time seeing and understanding your perfection. And yet your word is the truth. And we, saint, we are sanctified by truth. And so I pray on behalf of this church that you might sanctify us. That our joy might be found in you. That, that we might be a church on mission. That, that you might take joy in our participation in the gospel. That we might have affection for one another. That that affection for one another might be conspicuous. You, your son told his disciples they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Father, cause us to love each other so much, to love you so much, that others wonder about what what it's all about. Help us to embody the things Paul prays for. And help them be our prayer for ourselves as well. Not so that Bethlehem Church can be great but so we can point to you as the one who already is great and forever will be. Great is your faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.